All right. Before we read our scripture this morning, I just wanted to uh, fill in one more announcement today. So, uh, it, most years we have we start uh, within the first month of February. We begin kind of uh, promoting small groups uh, in homes. So small groups are a time when we meet weekly together to study the scriptures and to pray for one another and to build community. And this season of time. Uh, we had an idea. We had an idea. And that idea was that uh, in place of home groups over the next, over the spring here, over the next three months or so, we want to be really intentional about as many people as possible participating in the community life of the church. So what that means is we were trying to reimagine what exactly, uh, how we could get as many people as possible to participate. And what we decided to do in lieu of weekly home groups was that we would be prioritize uh, gathering together for meals. And we've, uh, we've been reaching out to people. We're going to have uh, six different hosts who are going to invite people into their home twice between February and May, so the end of April. Uh, and what this is, next week we'll, we'll have all of the details ironed out and you can sign up uh, for those groups and we'll be promoting them over the next number of weeks. But our primary uh, purpose in doing maybe a shorter, uh, a smaller number of gatherings over a smaller amount of time is because we want, like I said, everybody to be able to attend. <laughs> Does this make sense? And we want people who don't usually spend time in fellowship with one another to kind of cross-pollinate a little bit. I know our church is not particularly large, but there's still relational gaps between some of you. Do you know this? That sometimes Sunday morning can't, can't always um, cover because you're running around and doing things and busy. And uh, if you're in my phase of life, you are chasing kids who are faster than you. Uh, so, so that's what we want to do. So please prioritize that. Can I just ask pastorally that you prioritize that? Everyone in the span of two and a half, three months can find two nights that work for them, right? And we can gather together. We can eat. Uh, we can get to know one another. We can pray for one another. It'll be a good thing. So dinner groups this spring in lieu of small groups. We still have some people meeting uh, regularly throughout the week for small groups. We're not going to stop people who want to do that. But our emphasis I mean, we're going to encourage people who want to do that. But uh, we want to emphasize uh, that we want, us, we want to be together. We want to be around the table like the, like the early church, right? We want to be around the table together. Amen. So uh, with that, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? Our text this morning comes out of the book of 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, right? Yeah, 16. So the beginning in verse 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint uh, for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town uh, trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Which gives you a little insight into Bethlehem at the time. Samuel replied, yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come 
to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw, saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Uh, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadad and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had uh, Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all of the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, "Send for him. He will sit down until he. Uh, we will sit down until he arrives." So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, "Rise and anoint him. This is the one." So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon da David. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see the beginning of the story of King David, the greatest king Israel uh, would know. And along with Moses and Abraham formed the three kind of pillars of the greatest figures in the story of the Old Testament. You see, in this story, Israel needed a king. Actually, Israel wanted the king, and the first guy that they selected, kind of, that was selected, wasn't working out. This was a king named King Saul at the time. King Saul started out as a humble person, but it had become quite clear that his heart was becoming more and more corrupt, and that he was not going to lead the nation in the pathways that, uh, that God had laid, out, had laid out for them. You see, Israel had been specifically selected by God to be his representatives, a people who would show the world what the creator of the world was actually like. This was Israel's purpose. Really, the whole story of the Old Testament is the story of God working with his people to bring about his purposes for the world. This is what we read about in the Old Testament. And because of Saul's arrogance, really, and his unwillingness to depend on God, God rejects Saul. That happens in the chapter right before the one where we just read. And the great prophet, the prophet of Israel at this time, was a guy named Samuel. Samuel is tasked with going and anointing a new leader, a new king. But here's the kicker. Saul is still the king, and he's going to be the king for quite some time. It's probably 15 years after David is anointed in this, in this space that he is finally ushered, that the tribes of Israel gather together and they basically select him as their king and put him in as the king of Israel. But God, despite the fact that Saul is still king and will be king for 15 years, God is moving on. And he's moving on through Samuel and to work through David specifically. So Samuel, listening to God, goes in secrecy to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. 
Jesse was a herdsman, probably a nobleman of some type. When we think of that, we think of it in kind of medieval terms, but he was probably more of like a clansman, as you would think uh, of clans of people in the Middle East. He probably had uh, a, lot of, a lot of property and a lot of people that, that he was responsible for. And Jesse, seeing the great prophet, who apparently had a reputation because people were scared of him <laughs> when he got to Bethlehem, trolls out all of his boys in front of the great prophet because the prophet wants to see them. And as he, as he kind of trots them out, what does Samuel say? He says, no, none of these. None of these are the ones that I came to see. And Samuel asked, do you have any more sons? And in verse 11, what does, Samuel say, or what does Jesse say? Jesse says this, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. So David comes from the field, right? And the prophet says, and the Lord says to the prophet, Samuel, that's the one. That's the guy. And right there in front of his whole family, Samuel takes the horn of oil and pours it over David's head, anointing him as king. Now, what's hilarious about this is he doesn't tell David really what he's doing, and he immediately, after pouring oil on his head, like bales to Rama, wherever that is, he uh, sets in motion this process of David becoming king, and yet no one really knows what's going to happen. Not even David has a clear sense of what just occurred. We have from the text this, this notion that, that the spirit was powerfully with David from this point on, but David is still a little confused, I'm sure, about what's going on. This instance in 1 Samuel is the story that kicks off the beginning of David's life. This winding and painful and sinful and powerful journey towards the throne of Israel and ultimately towards the end of David's life. It's a great story, and we're going to talk about it in vignettes over the next couple of weeks. We're starting this series we're calling Son of Jesse, Son of God. But what I want to connect with for you this morning is something that the, that the gospel writer Matthew says at the beginning of his gospel. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. If not, it'll be on the screen. But the very first line of Matthew's gospel, this is what Matthew says. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then Matthew proceeds to give the genealogy of Jesus, the family tree of Jesus. It's a very cool genealogy. We could talk about it for a number of weeks. We don't have time to do that right now, but if you ever want to dig into it, it's really neat. But at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, he lays all of his cards out on the table in the very first verse. He says, Jesus, the Messiah. Now, interestingly enough, Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed or anointed one. So you could read it like this, Jesus, the anointed, son of David, son of Abraham, which is fascinating, right? Because David had just been anointed as well. Now, one thing that Christians have understood from the story of the Bible from the very beginning is that the whole of the Bible needs to be read in the light of the revelation about Jesus. Now, this, I think, is what Matthew is getting at here. Matthew says here that through this genealogy and through the very opening line of his gospel, 
that Jesus is the culmination of the story of Israel. And Christians have always understood this to mean not only that he kind of continues the story, like he picks the baton up and runs it forward, not only that, but also that everything in the story that came before Jesus uh, doesn't just lay the groundwork for what, what happened to Jesus, but there is a kind of dynamic connection to Jesus's life and to the Old Testament that both helps us understand who Jesus is and what he did. In a sense, everything in the Old Testament needs to be read anew, afresh, needs to be read backwards with Jesus in, li- in, in the light of Jesus, and everything kind of needs to be uh, read forward with this story of the Old Testament and Jesus in mind so that we understand what the, what the goal or what the purpose of the gospel actually is. But now Christians know that because of Jesus, everything we read in the Bible and everything we read in the Old Testament must be read in, in the light of what he did. Jesus himself says this. Jesus himself says this multiple times in the, in the Gospels, but in Luke 24, after the resurrection, here's an example of it, Jesus appears to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and we're, and we're told there that Jesus interprets all the, the, the books of Moses and the prophets, which is basically a way of summing up the whole Old Testament, uh, and he, he talks about how all of this taught, was meant to point to him, or it all taught, spoke of Jesus. So everything we read is meant to point to Jesus and must be interpreted through what we know about Jesus as revealed in the scriptures. And with that uh, understanding, how we read the Bible will be transformed. And it transforms the way that we read stories like the one we just read about David. Because Christians read all of the Bible, not just the New Testament, as though it is a story about Jesus, because it is. And one of the best ways we can see this is when we look at individual characters within the Bible and see the ways in which we can read their lives as a precursor to Jesus, as a story that's leading up to Jesus. And one of the primary types or figures in the Old Testament that teaches us truths about Jesus is David, is King David. And so in this series, we're going to be looking at aspects of David's life in order that we can come to a fuller understanding and a deeper love for Jesus. So that's my hope over the next number of weeks. And this week, we want to focus on the aspect of David's life that we see represented here as he is introduced. And uh, this aspect of his life that he carries with him in a deep way throughout the entirety of his life. We read about it in verse 11 this specific aspect of his life, when, when Samuel is looking for this son that he's going to anoint, and he asks uh, Jesse, are, do you have any more sons? And Jesse says, there is still the youngest. He is tending the sheep. David was a shepherd. David was a shepherd, wasn't he? And even after David leaves his father's house to become All of the things that he becomes, right? The great warrior and king and prophet and priest of Israel. He carries with him this identity of a shepherd deep in his bones. It's kind of like the way that if you grew up on a farm, the farm is always with you, right? I did not grow up on a farm, but I know some of you who do. And you just have a farm. There's just a piece of your heart that is always 
on the farm, isn't it? You can't get away from it. But even more than, than that, even, I think shepherding for David became this fundamental part of his identity. It became a lens through which he saw his vocation. And God sees David this way as well. Fifteen years later, when he, is, when he ascends to the throne of Israel, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we read this, all of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, notice, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. When all of the elders of Israel had come to David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. There he got another anointing. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Hebron. He reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah, 33 years. Notice here that God, God's self, gives David this title of shepherd of Israel. And it becomes, I think, a lens through which David understands what he is supposed to do, but also, in a sense, he sees it as a lens or a way of understanding who God is. You know, in David's mind, shepherding had a lot of different components. He was so thoroughly a shepherd that when he sees Goliath and he volunteers to go fight Goliath, he doesn't take the normal weapons. He doesn't take a sword or a spear. He takes the weapon of a shepherd, a, a basically a sling, a piece of rope that helps you throw a rock, right? This is all this was. It wasn't even one of those fancy um, wrist rockets that my mom didn't want me to have because I would <laughs> hit, because I would shoot at cars as they crossed our street. Um, it wasn't even one of those. David is so thoroughly a shepherd that he doesn't even know what to do with a sword, right, at this point in the story. But if we're going to understand how David understood this vocation of a shepherd, I think the best place to look is the poem that he wrote about what a good shepherd is. And if you want to look for this, you can find it in Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, this is the most famous psalm in all of the prayer book of the Bible, which is the Psalter, the book of Psalms. It's the most famous psalm. Most of you probably know it almost by heart. But in this poem, in this, in this psalm, David lays out what the Lord as a good shepherd looks like, right? As a way, I think, of saying this is what the vocation of shepherding at its best looks like. And here's what, it, here's what he says. I'm just going to read the whole thing. Beginning in verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So when David thinks of a shepherd, he thinks of the Lord. 
and, and he talks about the loving kindness which, with which this shepherd leads him. And I can't help but think that this poem influenced David's thinking about his own vocation and his responsibility as the shepherd of Israel. So as we look at this poem, as we look at Psalm 23 more closely, we can see some aspects of what it is a good shepherd does, right? First, a good shepherd leads his flock with kindness. A good shepherd leads his flock with kindness. The leadership of a king like David in his day was harsh. The king had total control, power over bodies. He could do and take and be whatever he wanted in this time. He was sovereign to the hilt. And yet, when David thinks of the, thinks of the role of shepherd, how does the shepherd lead? The shepherd leads with kindness and with love and with compassion. A shepherd is one who acts, like, acts in a way with his power, with his authority, in a way that is not overbearing or demanding, that does not leverage his power for himself. Rather, he leads his flock with kindness. Have you ever been led without kindness? Many of you probably have a parent that didn't lead with kindness. They had leadership, they had authority, but they didn't lead with kindness. And we know that the devastation that, that can bring in our lives. Maybe you've worked for a boss who had power, right? They had authority, but they didn't lead with kindness. Their, their concern wasn't for you as someone who was under their authority. Rather, their concern was for themselves, for their own betterment. And we know that the, of the pain and the difficulty that that can create in our hearts and in our lives. But when David looks at what it means to be a good shepherd, we see that a shepherd leads with kindness, with kindness. So that's the first thing. The second thing we see from this poem is that the, a, a good shepherd is one who feeds and waters his flock, providing for their most basic needs. A good shepherd provides for the basic needs of his sheep, right? A bad shepherd starves his sheep, right? This is not what a good shepherd does. A good sh but a good shepherd, rather, provides for the basic needs of his sheep. You know, in this, uh, in this psalm, it could be represented simply as food and water and a nice place to rest. But the point being that God cares for our basic needs. Now, this is a, this is a biblical truth. God cares about your basic needs. God cares that you have a roof over your head and a place to sleep, that you have enough food and enough uh, electricity to survive. All right? There is a teaching in the church that God wants you to be wealthy beyond imagination. This is not true, right? This is just not true. But God does want to provide for your basic needs. He wants to provide for your basic emotional needs. He wants to provide for your basic physical needs. He wants to provide for uh, your basic relational needs. God is a good shepherd who will provide for your needs. And if you are feeling as though you have a basic need that is not being met, I would encourage you to ask him to meet it, all right? To ask him to meet it, because God provides for our basic needs. 
there are stories galore, and I'm sure there are stories in the room, of moments at which we were without or in need that God provided. There are times, whether that is financial or whether that is relational, that we felt lost or abandoned, and God provided a person to come alongside you and to support you in the midst of a broken situation. Or a time when you just didn't have enough money to pay the rent, right? And God provided miraculously that need. God wants to provide for your basic needs, and we cannot deny that that is true because it's all over the scriptures. Now, one thing about this idea of God providing our basic needs in the New Testament, the primary source of that provision is not the miraculous. Do you know what the primary, well, it is miraculous, but it's not like uh, little dollars falling through your chimney and into, right, and down into your bank account. Uh, The primary mode of meeting the, the basic needs of people in the New Testament is the church, right? It's the people of God coming together. This is what we see in Acts 4, that they, they lived together in community. They supported one another in community. They loved one another. They gave their resource to one another so that no one had need, correct? The community of Jesus is a community that provides for the basic needs of one another. And in that way, God brings about this miracle of provision for our lives. And so, and so, I will say this, that the, the primary engine of our provision, if you are a follower of Jesus, is the church. It's fellow Christians. It's your brothers and sisters. And in order to have, and very often when we don't feel like we have relational or financial or uh, spiritual needs met, it's because we have disassociated ourselves from the engine of God's provision, which is the church. And the part of what we need to do is kind of reconnect into that reality. All right? The next thing we learn from this poem is that a good shepherd walks with us through our most difficult spots in life. Have any of you ever felt abandoned, alone, let down? At the very least, you go like, why is this happening? What is going on? The promise we have from the character of this good shepherd that David tells us about is that a good shepherd walks with us through the difficulty of our lives. Even though I walk through the darkness of the valley, I will, feel no, I will, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. There are people in this place today that I'm sure feel as though they're in a valley of darkness in some sense. Maybe it's really dark, maybe it's just a little dark, but in those moments, it can be very easy for us to believe that God is not with us because of the very fact that it feels dark. But the promise of the Good Shepherd in this, in this poem is not that the Good Shepherd will not lead us in pl- into places of darkness, but rather that he will be with us in those moments. You see, it's the very fact that, light, that it is inevitable that in both the Christian life and in regular life, we will experience times of darkness in the valley, and there will be evil that will surround us, but yet the promise of God in the midst of those times is His presence with us, His consolation, and that He is with us. Now I know, and I have felt this personally in times where I've been discouraged or depressed, where it doesn't feel like God is with me. I don't feel it, right? Because it's all about feeling. But the promise of Scripture is that He is. 
and the and the hope that we need to take even in the midst of moments in dark moments when we don't feel God's presence with us we don't feel as though he is walking with us is to stand and know that he is and to believe that he is and again to be in a place where we can walk with other followers of Jesus as his body to remind us and assure us of the fact that he is and very often very often when we look back over those dark moments, what we realize is that he carried us the whole way. You know, the whole foot tr- the footsteps thing, the sand, right? The, sa- the footsteps in the sand. It's the cheesiest poem in the history of the world, but we're just going to keep moving. Uh, but it's true, right? It's true that God has promised to be with us in the midst of those difficult situations, that he will walk with us through difficult spots, and that we cannot deny that fact. And the last thing I want to pull from this that we can take from David's description of what a good shepherd is, is that a good shepherd uh, guides us and even disciplining us into good paths. That That a good shepherd guides his sheep, even disciplining them into good paths. A good shepherd disciplines us for the purpose of keeping us on a good path. This is why we experience discipline in our lives. I I think we all have this kind of general notion that when I'm a child, I'm disciplined. And then when I turn 18, there's just like no more discipline, right? Because now I'm right about everything and every decision I make is great. And there will just be no more discipline for the rest of my life. And those type of people end up in jail, right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. The, the, the scriptures teach us, the scripture, I apologize, <laughs> I apologize for that one. We'll keep it moving. Uh, the truth of the matter is that the scriptures, scriptures teach us that God disciplines us, right? He actually does discipline us. Sometimes that discipline is allowing us the natural consequences of our actions, right? Other times it is God coming up alongside us via his Holy Spirit and showing us or reminding us some area in which we need to change. For me, very often in my life, it's been a trusted friend who would come up to me and say, Nick, you missed that one. But here's the key to God's discipline in our lives. We have to be humble enough to receive it. Because if you don't want to receive God's discipline, you don't have to. You can just keep going merrily away on your journey through this life, right? You don't have to receive it. You can take whatever comes, whatever difficulty that happens that might be God's discipline of you. You can just like walk straight through it and pretend it never existed, right? But if you're humble enough to receive it, it becomes a means by which God is able to nudge us onto the good path. I'm somebody who doesn't believe that God has one thing for each of us to do, that he has one complete and perfect will. And if we take one step off of the path that we're, we're toast and that if we, um, and we can never get back on, that there's one thing that God has for me to do or one person he had for me to marry. And if I miss it, I miss it for the rest of my life. I don't tend to believe that. What I believe is that God is always kind of redirecting in the you know, GPS sense of the term to get us on a path that leads us in his, uh, in his way. And he will often use discipline in order to do that. Now, David did not become the good shepherd, did he? David did not become the good shepherd. He did not become the shepherd of Israel that God wanted him to be, due in large part to his own sin, 
against people like Bathsheba and Uriah, sin against his family, violence that he perpetrated against people that God didn't want him to perpetrate against people, his privilege, his harem, all of these things were problems for David. And yet, he's still called the shepherd of Israel for a reason, right? For a reason. Now, let's look at John, the book of the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. And in this passage of Scripture, we see Jesus say something. Beginning in verse 14, he says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the, as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. That's you and me, just for the record. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and they shall be one flock, and one, uh, they shall be one flock, and I will be their shepherd. In Jesus, in Jesus, we have a better shepherd than David. One who feeds and waters us to provide for our needs. One who walks with us through the difficulties of our lives. One who guides us and disciplines us into the paths of righteousness. Jesus does all of this, and he fills up all of the space that David was not able to fill. Jesus is the better shepherd, the good shepherd, the one who fulfills the Psalm 23, uh, all of Psalm 23. He's able to fill it up completely and fully. But notice that Jesus marks out what makes him truly good. Notice this. What makes Jesus truly good and what marks him out as not only the good shepherd, but the best shepherd is found in John 10. This shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. Something David would never do, could never do. Jesus leads us to God by laying down his life for us. By dying on the cross for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that we may have new life that you and I might be born again into his kingdom of life and love. This is what makes Jesus the best shepherd, the good shepherd, the one who we can, can be trusted with our lives. You see, Jesus is the perfect picture of a shepherd that David was always supposed to point to, even as faintly as he was pointing he was pointing just ever so faintly to the reality that becomes fully embodied in the person of Jesus. And this morning, as I was praying, I just had this sense that some of us need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus is a good shepherd, that he can be trusted, that you can trust him with your life, that he laid down his life because he laid down his life for you, that you might have freedom in the ultimate eternal sense, but also in the, in the here and now, in the reality, in the, in the nitty-gritty of your life, that Jesus is a good shepherd and that he can be trusted. And though you can't, always, you can't always feel that reality, he is. And as your pastor, as your friend, I just want to affirm to you that Jesus is a good shepherd. Joss, if you could come up real quick. That Jesus is a good shepherd. And this morning just with our, our last remaining minute or two, we're just going to sing another song real fast. 
as a remind, as a as a as a way of responding to God this morning, and uh, as a way of reminding ourselves afresh and anew that Jesus is good, and He can be trusted. Would you stand with me this morning? I don't know about you, but there are, there are days, right? There are days when I need to be reminded that God is a good shepherd, that God is a good shepherd, right? There are, there are days when I need to be reminded that the, that the jaunt and the, the, the non-directness of my day might just be God leading me and guiding me into paths of righteousness, that his goodness and his grace are ever-present and they are always streaming towards me even when I don't deserve them. That's the point of this good shepherd laying down his life for us. And so this morning, just as Jocelyn sings, just real quick, would you just actively with me affirm to yourself in your own heart, in your own spirit, that God is a good shepherd, that he can be trusted, and that you can put all of your life in his hands. Let's sing together. you, Lord. And we're so thankful that you lead and you guide us, that you carry us along in this life in ways that we are not always aware of, but ways that we can trust. And Jesus, more than anything, that you were so good, in fact, you are such a good shepherd that you were willing to lay down your life for us, that we might be free from our sin, and that we might be free to love and serve you in your kingdom. 
And so this morning and this week, God, would you help to remind us of the fact that you are our good shepherd, that you can be trusted, and that when we place our lives in your hands, you will be kind with them, you will be gentle with them, and you will lead us to in paths of life and righteousness and goodness and love. Jesus, we devote ourselves to you this morning. Would you send us out from this place as ambassadors of your kingdom? And would we carry your love everywhere we go? We pray it all this morning in the name of Jesus. It's in that strong name that we pray. Amen and amen and amen. Would you go today and in the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. See you. Thank you.